Okay. Let's, uh, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you, dear Lord. We thank you for this wonderful congregation. We thank you for your word and that it goes out, dear Lord, and it goes out freely, Father. And we pray, dear Lord, that as your word goes out, it's received. It's received with hearts that are, that are ready, hearts that are wanting and desiring, and that are loving you and desiring nothing more, dear Lord, than to be with you and to know you more, that they might grow and they might affect a, a greater life around them, dear God. Those that are here, dear Lord, are here for a purpose, dear Father, and I know that you've given me a word. Pray, dear God, that you just be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue on um, with a series from Romans. We're going to be reading from chapter 1, verse 1, through to verse 17. It's going to be a challenging message for us all. We're going to be focusing on one verse in particular, but I want to read all 17 verses so we can at least get the context of what, um, of what this is set in. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, we're going to read from 1, verse 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We've gone through the first four verses. We'd seen already the incredible depth of Paul's writings just made evident within the first four verses of the book of Romans. There was so much to be able to talk about and it was such a blessing being able to present it. This next segment from verses 5 to 17 is a segment all on its own. And it speaks about something that the modern church, in a large way, lack. And it speaks about faith. We're known here as Faith Baptist Church. The challenge that we're going to be going through and the focus that we're going to be looking at will be on verse 8. It says, For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The consideration that we're going to have will be that this faith was made evident throughout the whole world. There was something unique, something that stood apart about the faith of these people that's spoken of throughout the whole world. Nothing can be evident unless it actually stands apart. There has to be a contrast. There has to be a contrast with what the world is like and this faith that's spoken of. It has to stand out. It has to be evident. And in the early church, we're going to go through a bit of historical stuff here where you'll be able to see 
how and in what manner this faith was made evident. Firstly, I want you to have a look at where Paul says in the previous verse, in verse 5, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Paul notes that grace and apostleship was received. That is, it was given. Okay? But it was given by whom? Well, we only need to go back to verse 3 and we see that it's by his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's through him that this manner of grace and apostleship was received. But it was received for obedience to the faith among all nations. The faith here is made alive through its enactment. Faith isn't just an idea. It's not just something that we believe. It's made real by our actions, by what we do, the choices we make, the decisions we make. Each one of us make decisions every single day and a multitude of decisions that we make. But here... It's clear that it's through obedience to the faith. And there you see, obedience requires something to be done. A decision needs to be made. And every time we look at something within our circumstances, we're making decisions. We say we have faith, but how many can rightly say that this type of faith is that which we obey? How many of us can properly conclude that our faith is in fact real? The Apostle Paul here affirms two things. One, the faith is counted alive, real, only when it's obeyed. Two, that the reality of faith obeyed is emphasised by the fact a reward was given. In this case, by grace and apostleship. A reward was given for this faith. That's how real it was by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So in this we now have the ability to measure the faith that we have. Whether it's alive and thriving or dead and dying. What decisions do we make with respect to the small things? The small things. It's the small things that I want to talk about, not the big things. Just the little things within our life. Think about what we wear, what we say, what we do, where we go, what we watch, what we listen to, what we think. Does what you wear display the care and concern you have for others as you love your neighbour as yourself? Or don't you care that your immodesty in clothing may lead them and anyone who see you, to sin. Have you ever thought about it? Do you even care? Is your faith alive or dead with respect to the the clothing of choice? Let me ask you a question. When it comes to stuff like that, are you more propelled to be more modestly dressed or you are more propelled to be more immodestly dressed? Men and women. Your answer to that question is going to give you an understanding of the direction of your faith. What you say, does what you say build up or pull down the one you're addressing? Do we offend in word, as James 3.2 warns us about, for our own amusement, without a single care to the one who might be the butt of our sarcasm? Or do we one another, or do we... Do we one to another? Do we each have a lowliness of mind to esteem each better than ourselves? When you speak, when you're speaking to friends, your own brothers and sisters, how do you speak? Is it to build them up, to lift them up, to edify them, or is it in a manner to put them down? Just because you want to have a bit of a laugh. Do you know how they're going to receive it? Do you know when to stop? Again, it's a decision that you're making based on faith. See, our natural tendency, and mine certainly was, is to be able to, I guess, degrade someone. Because for some reason it seems to lift me up. Makes me feel a little bit better about myself. I guess I'm getting into the hard part of the message very early here. 
but it's important because we've got a lot to go through and I want you to be able to understand and recognise the distinction between the faith you have now and the faith that they had then that was spoken of throughout the whole world. When it comes to choices about what we do, we're more inclined towards sport or godliness, work or leisure, entertainment or sharing your faith. Would you rather read a novel or the Bible? Wait patiently in the promise of God or do what you feel like? What do you actually do? What do you actually do? Ah, we live in a life today filled, filled with distraction. Whose distraction is it? Is it the Lord's? Does the Lord give us football to watch on television, tennis to watch during times where you probably should be spending time in church or in Bible study? Which is it? Who is it that gives us those things? Is it God? Does that come from the Lord? It doesn't take you much to work out. What about all the so-called good books? We had a whole pile of them being given us to hear last week and I saw plenty of people walking out with a decent pile. Let me ask you, how much of that do you read compared to the, compared to the scripture? Which is a good book? There's only one. What direction is your faith moving in? It's what you do. It's what you do. But see, what you do displays your heart. And that's what I'm speaking about. When you're talking about faith, it's where your heart is. Yeah, the word says, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Do you even have a care? We've got to have a care, guys. We have to have a care about where we put our affections. Does prayer time and Bible study, is that got to be fit in somewhere before the television show that I really like to watch? Or do we work it out another way? Or do we do we not even really care about the television show? If you don't care about the television show and you're more dedicated to wanting to spend time in prayer, then you'll know the direction that your faith is moving in. If you're trying to fit in and that definitely has to be finished before that show starts, well then again, you know the direction that your faith is pointing to. Is it a faith that is spoken of throughout the whole world? Does it stand apart? Is it evident? Or is it the same? Is it the same? Should I address what we watch? What do we spend time gazing at? I think a lot of you know some of the stuff that we watch is just not right. Just because it's on TV and it happens to have a particular rating doesn't necessarily mean that it's worthwhile for us to watch. Just because it says that it's adults only doesn't necessarily mean that adults should be watching it. We're affected by the lives of other people around us. What about what we listen to? The music of choice. Do we get our philosophy from 20-something individuals that have not even the capacity to know what a real life is today? Is that where we get our understanding? And are we just happy to sing along those words? 20-something philosophers we have out there, they write songs and music. And our entire generation is swept up in it. Is that the faith that could be spoken of throughout the whole world? Or is it like the world? Does it stand apart? Is it evident? What about what you think? Do you bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ? Or does your imagination run wild with all thoughts of others? Do you love God with all your mind? Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Are you willing to reason with him? Isaiah one eighteen. Or do you think what you like, not knowing that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death? What comes into your mind at any given moment of time? What do you do with the thought? What do you do with the thought? Do you submit it to the Lord? Recognize what it is? Capture it before it has time to plant seed within your mind and lead you to sin? Hey, these are just little things, guys. I'm only asking about little things here. Small, really little. We're not, we're not, we're not talking about going out there into the mission fields of deepest, darkest Africa, pre presenting the gospel and the thought that maybe someone's going to kill you. We're just talking about everyday stuff here. It's not really hard, is it? How do you stack up with the little things? The Apostle James confirms that only living faith is true faith. And by living faith, he means... He makes abundantly clear it's a faith that it's affirmed by the decisions we make in accord to it. Grab your Bibles, turn it to James, the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 
or just have a look at chapter 1, a few verses. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. Understanding something about the book of James, Luther um, didn't believe that that should be part of the Bible because it seems to, well, it seems to contradict the whole concept of living by faith. We'll talk about that in a second. James chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, He, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. When you come and you sit at the the feet of a pulpit and the pastor's given you a message, one of exhortation or one of rebuke, for for a second, isn't it for a second? All of a sudden you get a bit of a reflection of you, yeah? When you're hearing this, you're starting to reflect on who you are, yeah? You're starting to think, well, hang on, I might not measure up in that particular aspect, right? That's what he's talking about here. You're looking in a mirror, right? The perfect law of liberty, looking in the mirror. And then, are you a forgetful hearer? No sooner has the message completed that the next hymn is sung and it's gone. Is that you? Are you a doer of the word or a hearer only? Go forward to James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. Fourteen to twenty six. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Shew me thy faith without thy works, and I will shew thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon upon the altar? Seest thou how... Faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith alone. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. How abundantly clear is that? How abundantly clear is that? It's not just your belief. Your belief is made real by what you do. I counselled someone a little while ago. And as I was going through some scriptures with them, they go, Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Someone once said, to know and not to do is not to know. Your faith is made real by what you do. Faith is dead without works. Faith, true faith, is followed by what you actually do within your life, the decisions that you actually make. Hmm. Romans 1.6, Paul says, Among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Herein, completing this incredible introduction with a blessing and a statement of fact. We are beloved of God. Beloved of God. Did you see that? If you go back to Romans chapter 1, and you have a look at that in verse 7, he says, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God. It gives me such humility and reverence for my God is when I consider deeply all that I've just spoken about with respect to my own level of faith and how far I fall short. 
in the decisions that I make from day to day. And yet, I'm beloved of God. Beloved of God. The Bible teaches that we love him because he first loved us. And that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. How true it is that the goodness of God leadeth us to repentance, Romans 2.4. Further, we're called to be saints. We, when we trusted in Christ for the gospel, we became the called according to his purpose in Acts 8.28. So that's, that's, our, that's a statement of where we're at. And then we've got the blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the particular address and statement that I would just want to occupy our time for a minute. Well, it might be a little bit more than a minute. And it's found there in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Faith spoken of throughout the whole world. Remember what I was saying, and it's only contrasted it has to be something that stands out, yes? It has to be something that is contrasted by the world, contrasted for what life was like before. And we've got some wonderful examples of that in Scripture. Have a look at this. Think about Peter for a second. Peter, when the Lord brought up all the fish and put them into the boat, the first thing Peter said to him was, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter was looking at the perfect law of liberty, Looking at the Lord Jesus Christ right there. Depart from me. For I am unclean. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isaiah said the same thing, didn't he? He was talking about the same thing when the Lord was, was speaking. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Paul speaks the same thing again. He says about how, what a wretched man that I am. The distinction of what life is like without the wonderful law of liberty and the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. When we look at it. Peter again spoke foolishly during the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't he? The Bible says in, in Mark 9.6 that he didn't know what to say for they were sore afraid. And we also have in scripture the thrice denial of Peter. Three times he denied our Lord. Three times he denied our Lord. Not once, three times. He had so much confidence and so much strength and so much desire to actually follow after the Lord and yet when it came down to the crunch and things got a little bit tough he denied him three times and the Lord had him affirm three times that he loved him in John chapter 1 chapter 21 verse 15 I can't resist this I have to get into this we often get a lot of um, turn your Bibles to John chapter 21 verse 15 for a second Actually, I might need my Bible. You remember that portion in the, in the Bible where the Lord says and asks Peter, he asks him three times, do you love me? Verse 15 says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. What's that saying? Why did the Lord ask him three times, Do you love me? Why? Anyone? Sorry? He denied him three times. Pretty clear, yeah? Pretty clear. Modern scholars today don't want to leave it that clear. They want to confuse you and they want you to think that it's something more than that, that there's a hidden meaning within this text because they look at the Greek words that are underneath the text and they say Jesus used the word agape or agape, which basically means it's a, it's a love that is, that is um, 
a love that comes only from God. You know, it's a, it's a complete, full love. It's, a, it's an unconditional love. And every time Peter responded, he responded with the word phileo, which we have translated here love, which is a brotherly love, according to modern scholarship. Right? That's what they say to you. Guys, if that's, what, if that's true, then your Bible's not adequate enough. You need someone here at the front to be able to tell you what that actually says. It's true that in that particular portion of the text, the word is agape. That every time Jesus mentioned it, the word also is phileo when Peter responds. But is that how we to leave it? Do we accept what the modern scholars say? Does God not have the ability to actually say, Lord, I love you as a brother? Can God not say that if you wanted to say it? Well, we actually find that those words are actually used interchangeably in Scripture. Okay? Let me ask you a question. Does God love the Son? Does God love the Son? Yeah, God loves the Son, yes? With what sort of love does he love him? With a, with a, with a, with a phileo, brotherly sort of love? Or does he love him with a, an agape, or full love, a, a complete, you know, unconditional love? Which love? The full love, yeah? Complete, unconditional. Yet the word we have there is phileo. It's not agape. In, um, in Luke 11.43, he says, Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues. How can you love a chair? Do you love it with an unconditional love? Or a sort of affectionate, brotherly kindness sort of love? Sort of brotherly kindness sort of love, if anything. It's not a really... Well, yet the word is agape. Wow. That doesn't fit. Matthew in 23.6 says, Love the uppermost rooms at the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. Guess what word's there? Phileo. So we have the same sort of thing in Luke, agape, and yet we have it in Matthew, phileo. It's the same. It's the two different words, and yet we have a translated love. You think the translators knew what they were talking about? I think they did. What about this one? What about in Revelation 3.19 where Jesus is speaking and he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. What sort of love could that be from the Lord our God, from our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ? What sort of love has to be an unconditional one, yes? At the words phileo, it's a brotherly love, according to modern scholarship. Okay, you see where I'm going with this? We, we've got a Bible that's been perfectly translated in my view. Okay, you can think what you like, all right? But it's a simple message. The Lord asked him three times, do you love me? Because Peter denied him three times. We don't want to take away from the simplicity that is in Christ and the simplicity that is in the word of God. So be very careful. Anytime people start getting into original languages, I know I'm probably preaching to some of the converted here, immediately a little antenna needs to go up and you check the scriptures. You check it and ask why was it this way? Okay, so there's just my little side bit. I had to get that bit in because I was heading there and a lot of people get sucked into this. And So my apologies. What was the change? What was the demonstration of faith that Peter had? Here we have him denying the Lord three times. That would have been the, high, the lowest point in Peter's life. So low, in fact, that we've got it presented in all four of the Gospels. It's one of the few things that are presented in all four of the Gospels. What was the end of his life? What was the complete, full demonstration of his faith? In the end, Jerome said that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring, because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. This was the end of his faith. That was the faith that was made real. That was the faith that gave all, gave everything. What about James and John? Remember James and John? They were just almost as bumbling, weren't they, to a degree? In Luke 9. Uh, 54, they, they were there with the Samaritans. They said, Lord, Lord can we, should we command fire to come down from heaven and consume all these people? And the Lord says, you don't know what spirit you're of. What, was, what about the other one? What else did they do? They wanted to sit, one on his left and one on his right, in his glory. And Jesus asked them a question though, didn't he? He asked them, can you drink of the cup that I'm going to be drinking of? Or be baptised with the baptism that I will be baptised with? And how did they answer? We can. We can. And indeed, they did. An account given by Clemens Alexandrinus shouldn't be overlooked. James was led to a place of martyrdom. His accuser was brought 
to repent of his conduct by the apostle's extraordinary courage. So the apostle James had an extraordinary courage that the accuser himself, the one that accused him, was actually brought to repent with James. He fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup which he had told our Saviour he was ready to drink. Incredible history, isn't it? What about John? What happened with John? Uh, John, we know who John is. John's the one that wrote the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Gospel of John. What happened to him? Did he die a martyr's death? Anybody? Does he know he, did he die a martyr's death? No, he didn't die a martyr's death. He was actually... Um, shoved up to the Isle of Patmos, that doesn't necessarily mean that he wasn't um, persecuted in some way. The Apostle John was ordered to be sent to Rome, where it's affirmed that he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. He escaped by miracle without injury. Domitian afterwards banished him to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Nerva, the successor of Domitian, recalled him. He was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. What can we say of some of the others? Martyrdom of the Apostles, we know about Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, then crucified, AD 54. Matthew was slain with a hellbird. A hellbird is actually a, a, it's a spear on one end and a battle axe on the other. In AD 60, Matthias was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Andrew was crucified on a transverse cross. It's a cross that actually sort of lies across the ground. St Andrew's cross is known about that. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Paul gave his neck to the sword. Jude was crucified in, at Edessa in 72 AD. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified after bringing the gospel to India. Thomas, remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? I, used, I like Thomas. He reminds me of Eeyore, you know. Because there's that portion in the scripture, you know when the Lord says we're going to go back into Jerusalem? And Thomas says, well, we should go too. That way we can die with him. You know, it reminds me of Eeyore. It's just, it's real sad. Every time you see him, it's just sad. I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in his, you know. Yet he preached the gospel in Parthian, India, where exciting the rage of the pagan priests, he was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. Luke is supposed to have been hanged. Simon Zelotes was crucified. Barnabas gave his life in 73 AD. And Timothy, no, Timothy, the same Timothy that we've got the, uh, in the scriptures. As the bishop of Ephesus in 97 AD was beaten to a pulp for reproving the people for their idolatry and died two days later. Faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. If were only the 12 men or so listed above, their death would have ended the faith spoken of. Makes sense? So if that faith had ended with just the death of those few men wouldn't be spoken of anymore but the common folk heard the word of God and were moved to obey that faith and so we have accounts of that evidence we're going to be going through a little bit of history I hope you enjoy it because there's a lot here and I really wanted to bring it out so you can again compare your faith with them the complete volume of the acts and monuments of the church containing the history and sufferings of the martyrs extends to eight volumes this is John Fox's book you know we know it as um Fox's Book of Martyrs. We know it as Fox's Book of Martyrs, but that's only a real brief summary. It actually extends to eight volumes in real terms, over two and a half thousand pages, and we get this little slither of a book on our bookshelves and quite cut it. But I want to glean some history of there. Um, Nero attributed the burning of Rome to Christians at that time, circa was 67 AD. This was the occasion of the first persecution. The barbarians exercised on the Christians were such as even excited the commiseration of the Romans themselves. Nero had refined upon cruelty and, and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sued up in the, sh in the skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs until they expired. And others, dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, fitted to axle trees and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire, but it rather increased 
then diminished the spirit of Christianity. In the course of it, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. Domitian in 81 AD, during the Second Great Persecution, said that no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. The call was to renounce the religion of Christians. The call was for them to deny the faith of the Lord, the one that bought them, the one that saved their souls. That's what the purpose was. They had to have them renounce it. But these were not destroyed because they did wrong. Not because they stole or killed nor because they did anything wrong. You understand? They didn't get killed because they were wicked people. They didn't get killed because they did bad things. We've got an interesting historical reference by Pliny the Younger. Listen to this. This is fantastic. In the 110 AD, the reputation of those who lived by faith in Christ was evident during the third persecution under Trajan, where Pliny the Younger described it this way. He was a man that was learned and famous, He saw the lamentable slaughter of the Christians and moved with pity, he wrote to Trajan. This is what Pliny said. Uh, Where are we? The whole account they gave of their crime or error, whichever it is to be called, amounted only to this, that they were accustomed on a stated day to meet before daylight, to repeat together a set of form a set form of prayer to Christ as a God and to bind themselves to the obligation not not indeed to commit wickedness but on the contrary never to commit theft, robbery or adultery never to falsify their word never to defraud any man after which it was their custom to separate and reassemble to partake in in common of a harmless meal that was Pliny Epistle 97 interesting isn't it? So the reputation the Christians had, was it a good reputation or a bad reputation? By anybody that's really, really noticing these people, it was a very, very good reputation, not a bad one, not one of wickedness. So he couldn't understand the persecution here. Thousands died under this persecution under Trajan, and their faith was made evident by the giving of themselves completely. Ignatius, um, pastor of Antioch, returning his writing to those in the Church of Rome, listen to what Ignatius said. He was exhorting them not to use any means... To deliver him from martyrdom, lest they should deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. This is what Ignatius wrote. Now I begin to be a disciple. I care for nothing of invisible, of visible or invisible things, so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. Even when he found out about the sentence to be thrown to the beasts, he heard the lions roaring. He was heard to quote this, to say this, I am the wheat of Christ I am going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Oh, what faith. I see hairs on the back of my neck and everywhere else that I've got to stand up. You know, it's just incredible. You look at this faith that stood out. The early persecutions of Christians didn't falter the work of the gospel. In, 11, in 115 AD, another Gentile historian, Tacitus, he wrote this. He said um, he was writing to Tiberius. Uh, He wrote this. He said, The author of the denomination was Christ, who had been executed in Tiberius' time by the procurator Pontius Pilate. The pestilent superstition, checked for a while, burst out again, not only throughout Judea, but throughout the city of Rome also. The Annals of Tacitus. So this superstition, so-called, had burst out. It was making itself evident. It was being preached among all the Gentiles. Everyone was learning about the wonderful truth of God. It didn't die with the apostles. It kept growing and growing and growing. And people's faith was made evident by how they lived their lives. It was not hidden in the culture of the day. It was set apart in that day. You'd think it would be a little bit harder to set apart in that day than now, yeah? Because it's just so, you know, it's just so, so, so wicked today, you know? Yet it was still set apart in that day. No one was watching TV back then. 
There wasn't any football matches that they had to make sure that they were there. There were certainly some games going on. Namely, the slaying of Christians in the Colosseum would have been one. Fourth persecution under Marcus Aurelius witnessed the testimony of many who gave themselves by faith, having the effect to save many souls for the Lord. Germanicus, a young man, but a true Christian, being delivered to the wild beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired such fortitude. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, after feasting the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which, being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burned in the marketplace. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Oh, that we would have such faith. That we would have such faith. It's been said that the lives of the early Christians considered, consisted of persecution above ground and prayer below ground. Their lives are expressed by the Colosseum and the catacombs. Beneath Rome are the excavations which we call catacombs, which were at once temples and tombs. The early church of Rome might well be called the church of the catacombs. There are some 60 catacombs catacombs near Rome in which some 600 miles of galleries have been traced. Incredible, isn't it? This is where they're all buried under the catacombs. 600 miles of galleries. 600 miles of galleries. It wasn't just Christians that were in there. It was also pagans that were there. But I want you to have a look at this. This is... See, it's it's not that they suffered... That's important here. I don't want you to get the impression that you need to, you need to go through these incredible trials and tribulations. What, what, what astounds me with all this is the joy they had in the suffering. They didn't just suffer and were found miserable. They were filled with joy. What sort of faith is that? I want to have a faith like that. How can I have a faith like that that is filled with joy no matter what goes on? And guys, I've only... I scratched the surface here. I haven't gone into... Mate, I've read a lot of the detail and some of the detail on what they do to people, it would make your stomach turn. And I was not going to bring that here. But you need to read some of this stuff in Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is incredible. It's not just his testimony. There's a number of others here. When the Christians' graves have been opened, the skeletons tell of their own terrible tale. Heads were found severed from the body. Ribs and shoulder blades were broken. Bones are often calcined from, from fire. But despite the awful story of persecution that we may read here, the inscriptions breathe forth peace and joy and triumph. Here's just a couple of them. Here lies Marcia, put to rest in a dream of peace. Next one. Lawrence, to his sweetest son, born away of angels. Next. Victorious in peace and in Christ. Next. Being called away, he went in peace. Now, these aren't the only inscriptions. There were pagan inscriptions there as well. I want you to see if you could recognise the mentality of the pagans there. See if it's anywhere near today. Live for the present hour, since we are sure of nothing else. I lift my hands against the gods who took me away at the age of 20, though I had done no harm. Once I was not... Once I was not, now I am not. I know nothing about it, and it is of no concern of mine. (laughs) Traveller, curse me not as you pass, for I am in darkness and cannot answer. Darkness, fear, dread. It's It's not a peace. It's not a peace that they have when they pass. During the seventh persecution under Emperor Decius in 249, I only want to make mention of one event here. This is an interesting one. Nicomachus, being brought before the proconsul as a Christian, was ordered to sacrifice to the pagan idols. Nicomachus replied, I cannot pay that respect to devils, which is only due to the Almighty. This speech so much enraged the proconsul that Nicomachus was put to the rack. After enduring the torments for a time, he recanted. But scarcely had he given his, this proof of his frailty 
Then he fell into the greatest agonies, dropped down on the ground and expired immediately. Denisa, a young woman of only 16 years of age, who beheld this terrible judgment, suddenly exclaimed, O unhappy wretch, why would you buy a moment's ease at the expense of a miserable eternity? Optimus, hearing this, called to her, and Denisa, avowing herself to be a Christian, was beheaded by his order soon after. I don't know how far to go on. I'll skip these next couple. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The faith of this multitude of people was spoken of and immortalised in history. The Apostle James said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall unto diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What startles me the most of these persecutions and trials is the joy, and I mentioned that before. Paul notes, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. Your desire is to live godly in the Lord, you're going to suffer some persecutions. But don't let that distract you. Don't let that distract you. Because that's the only life worth living. There is no other life worth living. In Timothy, um, 2 Timothy 3.12, Peter, uh, oh, that was 2 Timothy 3.12. Remember, Peter, after being beaten, he rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I want to encourage you by this letter. And I'm, I want to read it in its entirety. It's not that long. But there's something very distinctive about the letter. Remember I was saying to you that it's the joy that they have and it's the encouragement that each of the brethren gave to one another during these difficult times and difficult trials, right? They encouraged one another in the Lord, you know? It's a faith that's made real. It's a faith and a belief that's made real and evident by the decisions that they made. And there's something distinctive about this letter and particularly how it ends. I don't want to draw your attention to it. By the name of, uh, God by the name of Richard Roth, who um, he was condemned because he didn't take the sacraments, nor did he believe in the sacraments. And he was condemned, and there was many people in the prison also condemned with him. He was waiting for his time. He was waiting for the judgment to come. He kept waiting and waiting and waiting that, you know, that he will be given the time when he's going to be, um, be sent to be with the Lord. But he encouraged his brothers and sisters. This is what he said. Oh, dear brethren and sisters, how much reason have you to rejoice in God that he hath given you such faith to overcome this bloodthirsty tyrant thus far. And no doubt, he that hath begun that good work in you will fulfil it unto the end. O oh, dear hearts in Christ, what a crown of glory shall you receive with Christ in the kingdom of God. Oh, that it had been the good will of God that I had received with Christ, uh, that, I had, that I had been ready to have gone with you. For I lie in my Lord's little ease by day, and in the night... I lie in the coal house, apart from Ralph Allerton, another person that was with him, or any other. And we look every day when we shall be condemned, for he said that I should be burned within ten days before Easter. But I lie still at the pool's brink, and every man goeth in before me. How what an incredible way to quote scripture. But I lie still at the pool's brink. Remember the pool? What was the pool there for? The pool was there to actually have people um, healed. Yeah, And he quotes, and, but others go in before me. You know, I want to go with the Lord. But we abide patiently the Lord's leisure with many bonds in fetters and stocks by which we have received great joy in God. And now fare you well, dear brethren and sisters, in this world. But I trust to see you in the heavens face to face. O brother Munt, with your wife and my sister Rose, how blessed you are in the Lord that God hath found you worthy to suffer for his sake with all the rest of my dear brethren and sisters known and unknown. O oh, be joyful even unto death, fear it not, saith Christ, for I have overcome death, O oh, dear heart, seeing that Jesus Christ will be our help. O oh, tarry you in the Lord's leisure, be strong, let your hearts be of good comfort, and wait you still for the Lord. He is at hand, yea, the angel of the Lord pitcheth his tent round about them that fear him, and delivereth them which he uh, which way he seeth best. For our lives are in the Lord's hands. 
And they can do nothing unto us before God, unless God suffer them. Therefore, give all thanks to God, O dear hearts. You shall be clothed in long white garments upon the Mount of Zion with a multitude of saints and with Jesus Christ, our Saviour, who will never forsake us. O blessed virgins, ye have played the wise virgin's part in that ye have taken oil in your lamps that ye may go in with the bridegroom when he cometh into the everlasting joy with him. But as for the foolish, they shall be shut out because they made not themselves ready to suffer with Christ. Neither go about to take up his cross. O dear hearts, how precious shall your death be in the sight of the Lord. For dear is the death of his saints. O fare you well and pray. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Pray, pray, pray. Written by me with my own blood. Richard Roth. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There's so many here that I can go through. Modern times, days right now. The Voice of the Martyrs is a magazine, a periodical that comes out from time to time and you can, you can have a look on the internet. Their statistics is that 200,000 Christians are martyred and killed every year for the sake of Christ today. Today. We don't hear any of it in the modern media. 200,000. A faith. A faith that's spoken the world over. A faith that's understood. A faith that's made evident, made real by the decisions we make, the small decisions we make. 2 Timothy 3.1. I'm going to give it a 10 more minutes. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.1 for a second. It'll give you a bit of an understanding and an account of why things are the way they are, why we struggle so hard to be faithful to the Lord. Because, again, I can't help but to give you comparisons. You've seen where you stood with respect to your faith at the beginning of the sermon. And we need to continue on with this. And I know it's hard and I know you hate it and I know you just want to... I'm feeling miserable. 2 Timothy 3.1 This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. Please understand this is not speaking about the world outside. The letter is written to Timothy, a pastor. It's referring to the state of the church. This is the state of the church. The world has always been like this. This is the state of the church in the last times, in the last days. The very next chapter, Paul warns Timothy of the reason why many turn away. Have a look at 2 Timothy 4 1. 2 Timothy 4 1. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Brethren, we're living in those days. These are the days. I left a church that was just like this. Just like this. Won't endure sound doctrine. Why is it that we don't hear it? Why is it that we don't hear people say, Oh, Lord, that you would give us sermons that are longer, longer sermons, that we might sit under the word of God and be changed by the wonderful power of the word. We don't hear that too many times, do we? Longer, beautiful hymns that we have. Why don't we sit there under longer ones? No. It's got to go the other way. It's got to go the other way. Which direction is the faith going? Which direction is the faith going? The harvest is ripe. 
The harvest is ripe, and yet the workers are few, and they continue to be few. Why? Because our faith isn't where it should be at. Our faith isn't evident in the world. Our faith is involved in the pleasures of this world. This is what we love after. We like the pleasures more than the lovers of God. This is where we stand. One of the sermons that I preached in my last church went for about half an hour. You would rejoice. Half an hour message from Eddie. That's fantastic. Half an hour it went for. I preached on the book of Romans and I preached on the doctrine of our eternal security in Christ. I discovered it. It was the most wonderful joy to know, finally, after so long, that I'm actually saved and that it's permanent and that I can't do anything to get rid of it. I can't lose it. There's nothing that I can do. I rejoiced in that, you know? And you'd think everybody else would rejoice in that, you know? You'd think everybody would love to know, my, I'm saved and it's permanent. After I preached that sermon, a number of people complained. The next sermon, the pastor said to me, that's okay, I don't mind you preaching, just don't preach on doctrine. I kid you not, that's exactly... I said that term again, I hate that phrase. I kid you not, I said it. I'm going to never... I won't live the end of it until I get home. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said. You know what he said after that? He was worried about the length of the sermon because it went for half an hour. And he goes, Eddie, less... Is more. Do you like that? Isn't that incredible? What does it show? What does it demonstrate? It just demonstrates his faith. It just demonstrates exactly where he is at. The decisions that he is making affects the entire congregation. I don't know of any of the people that are there any longer at that church. But none of them wanted to grow. They actually went from the frying pan straight into the fire. They went to another happy clappy church that is teaching them more of the same rubbish as long as they can uh, be entertained. Why? Because they will not endure sound doctrine. Brethren, the church is not a democracy. It's not based on the popular opinions of the people. That is the Laodicean church. That is the last church. That is the church spoken of in Revelation where no good is said about it. The church is not a democracy. The pastor has the right and the obligation to preach and teach the word of God, exhorting and rebuking and helping you grow in the Lord. Your job and mine is to grow in that faith and to really grow in that faith, to make a difference, not only in our own lives, but in the lives around us. I'm not going to take your time too much longer. I want you to compare something. Where are the preachers today of George Whitfield's standard who could address 100,000 people without a microphone and remain audible? When was the last time you saw modern-day church folk responding to a sermon by screaming, is there no way of escape, while clutching to the pews and the pillars for fear that the ground itself would open beneath them? Such was the case when Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Following an all-night prayer meeting, an all-night prayer meeting. I'll leave that. His sermons were described as white heat. How do today's today's scholars compare to men like John Wesley who found time to write 233 books and pamphlets while riding 250,000 miles on horseback? Where are the prison ministry workers who would lock themselves in overnight with death row inmates and literally sing them into heaven at at the gallows like Charles Wesley did? Can any of you name two songwriters who have composed nearly 17,000 songs between them, as Charles Wesley and Fanny Crosby did, quality songs? With the hundreds of Christian organisations in operation today, where is the parallel to a sickly William Booth planting his Salvation Army in 58 countries while preaching the gospel in over 34 languages? Where are they today? Where are they today? Any comparisons anywhere? Where is the staying power of modern day pastors that compare to those of yesteryear? Of all the graduates of Yale University from 1702 to 1775, 79% served one parish their entire life. Only 7% had more than two congregations and were reproachfully known as near-do-wells, unable to maintain a continuing relationship with their people. That's evident today. How many missionaries have you heard, like William Carey, who taught himself six languages and stayed on the field for 42 years without a furlough to translate the scriptures into 44 different languages? Incredible. Who knows of a prayer warrior like George Mueller, 
who, without a single stewardship program or plea from the pulpit, prayed in $7.5 million to feed more than 2,000 orphans daily. Not to mention distributing 101 million gospel tracts, 300,000 Bibles, while supporting 163 missionaries. He also read the Bible over 200 times in his lifetime. You know, we think that's unusual today. And I've said this before, the Bible's only 72 hours long. It's only 72 hours long. Charles Spurgeon also read the Bible over 200 times. George Whitfield also read the Bible over 200 times. It seems to be the standard. How many times have you read it? He also went on a 19-year, 200,000-mile evangelistic circuit after he was 70 years old. Where are they today? Where, where is the faith today? Where is the faith that's evident in the world today? That wasn't all. Think about those. People responded to the Lord in their ways. They responded by the hearing of faith and placed their faith into action, making it real and alive. There was no tennis or football after the sermon to distract him. There was no furniture shopping on a Sunday after church. My goodness, all of you are going to be, oh, should I be doing this today? No music to steal their hearts and numb their minds. What do we say of the 10,000 residents of White Clay Creek, Pennsylvania, who listened in profound silence to a George Whitfield sermon for one and a half hours through a steady rain in December? One and a half hours through a steady rain. Remember, George Whitefield preached outside. And what of the masses in excess of 6,000 that began assembling at 6am for the first of four daily preaching services by evangelist Sam Jones? What about them? Where are they today? In the early 18th century, there was a mortality rate of 74.5% among children. Um, children up to the age of five years old, 74% of them never made it alive. And these were the ones that all made it out of the womb we're talking about. Not like today, where 50% don't make it out of the womb. 74% that made it out of the womb died. That was their mortality rate. Yet in the first five weeks of Whitefield's Sunday youth service, and the teen department grew from 50 to 5,000 attendees, even though the services was conducted at 6 a.m. In 1803, we have this excerpt of a Baptist preacher during evangelistic circuit, and I'll close very shortly. Every day I travel, I have to swim through creeks or swamps, and I am wet from head to feet, and some days from morning to night. I am dripping with water. I have rheumatism in all my joints. What I have suffered in, the bo in body and mind, my pen is not able to communicate to you. But this I say, while my body is wet with water and chilled with cold, my soul is filled with heavenly fire. And I can say with St. Paul, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Twenty-seven-year-old Samuel Ward. He was the youngest translator of the King James Bible. One of the translators on the King James Bible. He had a diary, and uh, there's a couple of little excerpts here. And this really moved me when I first read it a long, long time ago. Um, he, he speaks of himself in the second person. He doesn't. He, he doesn't say I, I, I. He, he speaks mostly thy, right? So he's, and uh, in, in what, what year was it? 1595, these are a couple of excerpts, just in May. May 13th, he rebukes himself. Thy wandering regard in chapel at prayer time. May 17th, thy gluttony the night before. May 23rd, my sleeping without remembering my last thought, which should have been of God. May 26th, thy dullness this day in hearing the word of God. Your hunger and thirst after righteousness? It's just a decision you've got to make. You've got a choice to make. And God promises you joy. You know? Why don't we believe him? Why don't we delight ourselves in the Lord? The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why don't we taste? Why don't we taste? Why don't we consume more fully? Why don't we have him all? Take him at his word. Last quote was by Jim Elliott. He was an Ecuador martyr, and thank you, David, for the book. It's been a blessing reading it. He said simply, 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Such a beautiful quote and so true, so wonderfully true. There's only a few of you here today, but that doesn't discount the amount of stuff that you guys can do for the Lord. There's only a few of you here, but it doesn't change that you're here and others not, and you can share the wonderful word of God with people, and you can grow within your life, dedicating yourself to the Lord fully and completely, without apology, without apology, and grow and love him, truly, truly love him. Be a blessing to those around you that this place might be filled that we can share the gospel, that we can be a real, real presence and that our faith might be made evident to those that are outside. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice, dear Lord, in your word. We rejoice, dear Lord, in your rebuke and your chastisement. We rejoice, dear Father, in the exhortation that you give unto us. Father, that we would grow, dear Lord, more sincerely in the knowledge of your word and your will that we would indeed challenge ourselves even this year, this year, for one year even, to put away our idolatry, to delight ourselves in the Lord, and that in every way, dear Father, you would be our focal point, that not sports, that's not entertainment, that nothing would separate ourselves from you, that we would delight ourselves in the Lord, that these things will find themselves just passing away all on their own. Though it will be difficult to begin with, dear God, help us now make this decision for our lives, for our souls and for the care of those that are around us, that our faith may be made evident, that our faith might be spoken of throughout the whole world. It's not impossible, impossible dear Lord, because we know, dear Lord, that through weakness your strength is made known. We pray, dear God, that you would strengthen us, dear Father, in these endeavours to live a holy, righteous, set-apart, sanctified life for your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' glorious and wonderful name. Amen.